0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Missouri State Representative Bruce Franks Jr. announced earlier this month that he's leaving St. Louis. Franks first became politically engaged as a protester in Ferguson, where he carried a sign reading, I am a college-educated black man, business owner, father, husband. I apologize. I look like a thug. Battle-hardened by future protests, assaulted by police officers, and frustrated by the city's black leadership, he took on a local political dynasty, and after a surprising series of events, found himself elected state representative. In Jefferson City, he won kudos for working on both sides of the aisle. But Frank's rapid ascent came with a price. In May, he announced he was resigning his seat in the Missouri House after not quite three years. His resignation is effective tomorrow afternoon. He's also preparing for his exit from St. Louis, where he's lived for all but a year or two of his life. I sat down with him last week. Bruce, welcome to the program. There is so much I want to talk to you about today, but first, you're really leaving St. Louis.
1: Yeah, I'm getting out of here, getting out of here.
0: Now are you, you're 34 years old? Yep. And is this the first time you're gonna be moving outside the area?
1: No, around 2007, eight, um, I moved to Atlanta. Okay. Um, I was doing a lot of music here and was kind of big on the local scene here. So I moved to Atlanta then for a couple years to explore my horizons and learn some more. And and expand on my talent. So yeah, this will be the second time.
0: Okay, so you, you know there's a bigger world out there. You've already sort of put your toe in the waters. Oh yeah. yeah. You're ready to do it again. Absolutely. Okay, well uh, your last five years uh, have had more drama than most people get in a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> Can you take me back to August 9th, 2014? Mm-hmm. You were married, um, you owned a trio of businesses in Benton Park West. Mm-hmm. The day Michael Brown was killed by a police officer, I believe was your son's first birthday. Yep. What made you go to Ferguson?
1: Um, actually, I don't know. Um, I was talking to Michael Brown Senior. Um, probably a month ago, mm-hmm. and we were sitting there and we was just talking. and I said, you know what? I don't know what bought me out there, cause where I'm from, we had had a lot of young people killed by the police, mm-hmm. right? We had we'd seen this a lot, um, and so when it it kind of flashed across social media, I'll never forget. It was Tef Poe, um, his social media. That's the first picture I saw, and. I'm looking around and it's balloons, and I'm celebrating my son's first birthday on the day that somebody else has to mourn the the death of their son. So, um, something drove me out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that I think about it, I think back to when my son was born. Um, King, when King was born, he came out not breathing, and I remember for two and a half minutes thinking that my son is like, you know, my son is not here, and. I got that feeling again on August 9, 2014, and it was kind of like a father, like intuition type thing.
0: Sort of a deep empathy for, for what the parents must have Absolutely. been going through. Yeah, both parents. Both yeah. parents.
1: But me as a father, just, you know, what I thought I was going to go through and, you know, only imagining what, you know, this father and this mother was going through, so.
0: But so you didn't just go out there then that first day. Um, you went out there again and again. Is that what also kept you coming back? Was, was just that empathy for the parents? Or did your, your feelings sort of change as you began to, to get wrapped up in, in the movement that was building?
1: So I think it was the empathy for the parents, but like um, on a broader picture, it was when I got out there. One thing that we talk about in St. Louis, whether it's the music scene or whatever, we talk about like how segregated we are, how we don't support each other and blah, 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 right? Got out there and I saw all these folks from who didn't look like me, right, different nationalities, different sexual orientations, different sexes, different everything, all hurt um, and feeling the same way. And so to see that and to see all these folks who don't come from the same community or who don't even come from a community that looks like mine um, in the streets and hurt, um, especially that first day when it was like nobody knew what to do. It was just the streets were filled up. Um, and I remember when the police showed up. Um, when I got there, I saw the police. They had already been there, but um, when they were there with the dogs. And that took me back to all the films that we watch in elementary school and middle school about the 50s and, you know, how they used to water hose black folks during the civil rights movement and stuff. And so that kind of got me fired up. Mm-hmm. Um, must have
0: felt like you were in this historic moment.
1: Uh, and, and, you know, at first I don't. I don't think it hit us until probably two or three weeks out. I know me personally. I can't speak for anybody else. But when I turned on the TV and I saw folks in France and folks across the world um, chanting the things that we were chanting and, you know, and standing up for Michael Brown and and speaking up and speaking out and doing all of these different actions across the world, you know, not just the United States, that's when Mm -hmm. it was like, oh, man, this is. This might be, you know, this is history, but we all wish that it wasn't history, right? We all wish that this wasn't a part of history. We wish that we weren't here. Um, I wish I was just still, you know, the tax guy, you know, that rapped and not the activists, and because it took for somebody's son not to be here in order to get me, you know, where I'm at, so.
0: How did the feeling out in the streets change when the national media descended and then a lot of protesters started coming to Ferguson from elsewhere in the country as well? Did did it sort of change that initial spirit that you felt when you were first out there, or did that only grow?
1: So to me personally, um, it changed in a sense of for a while it was like, oh, all these people are out here. You know and i knew nothing about organizing there were some experienced organizers out there um uh, folks that i knew that were out there but um i wasn't experienced in it so i was just happy to see so many dear i didn't care where you came from and most of us didn't mm-hmm. until you started to understand that Oh, uh, you know certain folks are here for a reason right what are they here for they're not here for the same reason we are right
0: and by that you mean maybe they had some agendas
1: oh yeah yeah a lot of people had agendas um But those agendas didn't fit, um, in my opinion, didn't fit into that narrative of us fighting for justice um, and solely justice and letting everything else that happened, happen organically rather than it be forced. Um, And that's one thing that I didn't necessarily catch on to until, you know, really until after the decision, you know, no, until after the national media left. Because they left before the decision, then they came back, Okay. right? Yeah. Because a lot of people say, oh, you guys were out there for a couple of weeks. And like, no, we was out there for 400 days, right? When the media was gone, we were still out there. And so that's when you start to realize, like, oh, media left, a lot of these other folks left, and now it's just us, us 30, us 40 out here, not 2,000 or 1,500 or 5,000, you know, mm-hmm. so—
0: When did you decide to to take what you were doing and go from the streets to running for office?
1: So before the running for office part, there was this transition that happened where it was like, all right, we've been protesting, but what are we going to do next? I was part of the Peacekeepers um, that was started by Paul Muhammad. And
0: and and they were a group that was there to sort of um, stop escalation between the cops and the protesters. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And we did a really good job of it as well. Um, Had respect from both sides. Um, You know, some of the police departments as well as um, our, you know, our activists and our our organizers and protesters. Um, But it was this transition of we've been out here marching. We've been out here fighting. We showed that we were willing to die for this. But what's the next move? You know, what's mm-hmm. going to be next? So some of us went into, you know, creating community organizations. I created um, 28 of Life along with Carlos Ball, whose brother was Kerry Ball, who was killed by the police, mm-hmm. um, and, um, and Ayana. Uh, we all started this organization. Um, and then, you know, it, it got to the point where we were pretty effective at what we were doing in the community came and was like hey run for office so i started checking in with my activists and i'll never forget like the most substantial conversation i had um outside of with my family was with um you know rest in peace uh darren seals
0: mm-hmm. he was a, a ferguson protester as well yeah he was a friend later Pro- murdered
1: yeah and so he was the most like not <laughs> you know no politics no don't do police, it but he, he voiced his opinion, he voiced his dislike, but he was like, bro, if anybody could do it, you know what I'm saying, like, you could pull it off. You know, so we would talk in the inbox and he would be like, look, I, I'm supporting you, you know. And so that along with community support, along with the support of the folks I got pepper sprayed and tear gas with, along with the support of my family. Um, we like, I bet this is what we going to do. we going to run for office. I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you ended up taking on Penny Hubbard, who was part of a local political dynasty.
1: Yeah. You
0: won only after suing to overturn the results of the election and to force a revote. Did you ever think, man, I'm making some enemies here?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, this
0: was not an open seat.
1: So, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Quite the contrary.
1: I, I did. It's because it was funny. Um. What what made me realize it was 2015 I was leaving a Generation Progress um summit in Washington DC. I was on a plane with Lacey Clay. Okay. All right. And so at that time I'm still kind of new to politics. Everybody knows the Clays, right?
0: Yeah, here's the congressman yeah, representing he, yeah, your district. He's
1: the congressman. His you know, his dad was before him, so and I I gave him a shout out. You know, I went on Twitter. I'm like, I'm on the plane with Congressman Lacey Clay. He retweeted me. So when we got off the plane, I said, um, I said, hey, I'm Bruce Franks, blah, blah, blah. You know, I was in Ferguson. He's like, oh, okay, that's good. You know, um, you should, you know, you should, if you're mad about politics, you should run for office. Huh. I said, I "I don't know if I'm that person, but it's cool. So I run for office, right? Yeah. So the first day of filing, I walk up the steps. We're in Jefferson City. He's their father, um, and <laughs> he says, you look familiar. I said, yeah, I said, I'm uh, I'm running. You told me to run, I'm running. He said, oh, okay, what you running for? I said, I'm running for state rep. He's like, all right, what district? I said, 78. He said, 78? Hold on, who's the <laughs> – I said, I'm running against Penny Hubbard. He's like, oh, well – um. You know, it's good to get your name out there. I don't know, maybe you'll get it next time. <laughs> he just assumed you weren't oh, going to win. He just shot—he shot me down.
0: That—that's <laughs> funny. Yeah. And he might not have been so happy that you—that you did win. That—that uh, that leads me to—we have a clip of you speaking uh, on a previous politically speaking podcast episode about the tension you faced with some of the city's black leadership. Mm-hmm. Let's have a listen to that.
1: What I find and I see is that when we have black leadership in our community that's actually doing something, we are the ones that get attacked and we get attacked because there are certain folks in the establishment that are scared. And they're afraid of change. They're afraid of things moving forward. They say they want things to move forward. But when change looks differently, when change is a little bit more progressive, when it's very uncomfortable for them, then they go back to what the establishment values are, in my personal opinion. And then they fight against us. I think about my race. I think about everything up until this point. Most of the folks who have fought me are the folks who were representing my community, period. Oh man, I was
0: fired up. <laughs> you were fired up. <laughs> Do you feel like when you went to Jefferson City and here you had taken out a Hubbard, did you have any idea what you were getting into no. at that
1: point? No. No, I tell people all the time if I knew I was get if I knew what I was getting into, I wouldn't have did it.
0: You I'm, feel that even today? Yes,
1: I'm glad I didn't know. Because once I was mm-hmm. in it and I was fighting, mm-hmm. it's like, all right, I got to be here. I got to be here for the people, right? I got to be yeah. here for every every black elected official who's came up here and drank the Kool-Aid right like I gotta be the different one I gotta be the one that says no I'm not gonna do this I'm not gonna take this or I'm not gonna sell my vote or I'm not gonna you know Mm -hmm. Um, and so yeah if I had known I probably wouldn't (laughs)
0: I must say, I think one of the biggest surprises that political observers had about you was your ability to find common ground. Obviously, you ended up being kind of a firebrand with some members of your own delegation. Mm -hmm. But you ended up having decent relationships with some Republicans, which really surprised some people.
1: Oh, absolutely. Where did that,
0: how were you able to forge those relationships with people that you may not agree with on any of the major talking points that, that would come up in a political discussion?
1: Because one thing I understand is poverty. Right, I'm from the hood. I'm from 4300 Gibson, right? Um, whether you're from the south side, north side, west side, east side, um, when you're from the hood, you grow up poor. Um, and one thing that's synonymous around Missouri is we got a lot of rural areas that are poor. And so one language that we all speak is poor. And we, we're going to disagree on the things, you know, those, those fundamental values that we have, right? Like, that's fine. We can disagree on them. But the thing about a lot of Republicans is I didn't have to wonder where they are, right? I come in knowing that you're not going to vote this way on LGBTQ rights. I know you're not going to vote this way on, on police legislation. You're not going to vote this way on right to work. Like, I know where you stand as being pro-life or pro-choice. Right. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about putting food on the table, when we talk about youth programming um, for our communities and, and jobs and these type of things. These are the things that we see eye on. So how about we fight on this other end? Mm-hmm. Right. And then when it comes time that we can work together, we, we work together and not let my pride get in the way and say, OK, well, because we disagree on this, then I'm not going to get this done because they have the majority. Right. So they can do whatever they want to for real. So why not work with them, but work with them without selling my soul? work with them without selling my, and letting them know where I'm at so they know exactly how far they can get with me. And that's one thing about the body um, and humans in general. Like, people aren't gonna get as far as you let them, right? So once you set this barrier or this, you draw this line, they know not to cross it. Um, and those were those were some of the best relationships. But then some of my Democratic colleagues and some of my Democrats who were just around the city or the state and federal, um, they saw me as competition. They saw me as a threat. They saw me as a threat to what their normal was. Um, and so, they would push back, um, and but to no prevail for the most part.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what would you consider your biggest victory in Jefferson City?
1: Um, my biggest victory would be, although I did pass a bill that identifies youth violence as a public health, health epidemic, mm-hmm. um, and get. June 7th, named after my brother, Christopher Harris, mm-hmm. who who passed away.
0: Tell us a, a little bit about your brother. I know you've talked about that a lot, but for the listeners who don't know, he was nine years old when, when he was murdered.
1: Yeah, June 7th, 1991, he was nine years old. Um, two men came out the house arguing. Um, one picked pulled out a gun, the other one to shield him from the bullets, put my brother in front of him, used him as a human shield, and he passed away. Um, and you
0: were six when that happened?
1: Yeah, I was six. Okay. And Okay. So, um, June 7th is now Christopher Harris Day, and it's a day of advocacy against youth violence, especially, you know, what we see, the, you know, going on today, having 10, 10 young people, you know, being killed over over the summer is is horrible. Um, but my biggest victory would have to be uh, making sure we fund the summer jobs program because our former governor, um, I refuse to say his name, um, he uh, he cut the program mm-hmm. not knowing, like just Whatever for whatever reason he cut it to zero, and I remember saying to myself like, had I not been in the house, this was a program that I was a big champion of. So had I not been in the house, nobody would have really known to put that money back into that program. And that so, was
0: something you were able to fight for and yeah, get that funding back.
1: point 9, five million. You know, it's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. And so to um, actually um, four, then five point five, then five point five again. So over fifteen million dollars. Um, went into that program in the last three years and that affected all 114 counties in Missouri of of poor youth between the ages of 16 to 24 to help them gain work experience and financial literacy and mentors and behavior modification anything else that they needed or their parents um, through our workforce center so um, that was my you know I had to say speaking to the root cause of poverty and the root cause of, of crime as well was was my biggest accomplishment okay
0: Now, you were serving in the Statehouse when the Stockley verdict was handed down. It was a white St. Louis police officer was found not guilty of murdering a black St. Louis man you were out there leading protests, even though you were a state representative at the time. At one point, you were even arrested for blocking a highway, kind of unusual for a state legislator. Did you think about protesting differently now that you were an elected official and you had that microphone versus just being a a businessman in South City? Or or did you have that same feeling that you had had back in the days of first? I had
1: that same feeling. Okay. I told people when I was running for office, like, I'm not changing, so. if There
0: is the proof. (laughs) Yeah,
1: if if something pop off, like, I'm going to be out in the streets with the people. Like, that's who put me there. Who am I not to fight for? What you going to do, take my seat away from? Like, can't nobody do that but the people. And if y'all decide to impeach me or whatever, like, the people are who's going to turn up right? Like the people I represent, they want me here. They voted me here knowing that I would block the highway if we needed to block the highway. And you did. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Now, you had a colleague who um, introduced a bill to make blocking a highway a felony. This is while he's serving side by side with you. What was that dynamic like in the statehouse? It was funny. Um, (laughs) Was it funny to him or just funny to you?
1: It was was funny to me because um, Nick Schroer is the representative who yeah, introduced the bill. he's the, he's bill. the rep, uh, representative show out of St. Charles. And we have this weird relationship, right? Like uh, we get along, you know, and don't get me wrong. He has a couple pieces of horrible legislation that I just do not stand with. And I fought him on and I would fight him publicly, you know. Um, but he's one of those people where we can disagree, you know, wholeheartedly on this. Mm. Then come back and work together. He was, you know, the one that championed the raise the age, Bill, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of other things. And so when he did that, we talked it out. You did. You know, we talked it out. We talked it out. And, you know, because I, I had a counter piece of legislation to protest the Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, it was it was a lot of it was a lot of door slamming and conversation. And then finally, um, we just understood, you know, came to an understanding. Him, I, the speaker. Um, and we, you know, we were able to kind of put that to rest without bringing up too much, mm-hmm. you know, too you know, too many uh, issues.
0: I heard some other of your colleagues were quoted. um, They were angry that you were sort of celebrating that St. Louis had taken an economic hit that, you know, by by the protesters shutting down the city, that this (laughs) was causing problems to businesses. And they said they like you, but they thought that was just not a good look for you. What would you say to that?
1: Oh, I don't give a damn. I mean, (laughs) at the end of the day, like... Uh, When you have a community that doesn't benefit from said economic, you know, um, um, you know, value that that we say the city's getting, you talk about downtown and just a half a mile, you know, to your um, north. Right. Mm -hmm. You have. Poverty. You have a median income of thirteen, sixteen thousand dollars. You have people um, who are living in, in crime written communities with lack of education. No, you know, no real schools, no community schools. So don't tell me, um, you know, that that I shouldn't be proud of of hitting the city where it hurts. When these are um, the decision makers, right? These are the stakeholders, and they're not listening to us every other day, right? Mm-hmm. Every day they're not listening to us, and people are dying every day, and. You're not listening to us. But the moment a police officer kills somebody from our community and we decide to stand up and we hit the streets and it affects your business, now it's a problem. No, it was a problem when we were having 188 murders two years in a row, 200 murders, but you weren't paying attention then. So now in order to get this bigger platform to make our voices heard, because if we as humans, if we don't understand anything, we understand being hit in our pockets. Somebody take $20 from you and you only got $25, <laughs> you are going to feel it, Absolutely. Right? And you're going to listen, and you're going to try to figure out what's going on and why they taking my money. And, and so that's what we decided to do, um, and it proved effective. How we not did that, mm-hmm. O'Toole would still be the police chief, right? We wouldn't have a new police chief. We wouldn't yeah, have—
0: The interim police chief yeah. who, who would have been in line for the job. You feel like the protests really sabotaged that candidacy.
1: Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. How we not, I mean, he would be here. And what happens if he's here? Do we get all of these indictments of these officers who are doing horrible things, or does it get swept under the rug? Or, or do we get somebody in here who has integrity, who's willing to say, check this out, this is why I became an officer, and, you know, the bad officers make us look bad as well, so, you know, we're going to indict those we need to indict and push the good ones that we need to push. Mm-hmm. So.
0: So those are some high points. Let's talk briefly about one low point. Um, Mm -hmm. This past January, KMOV aired a story suggesting that you'd falsified timesheets for a past part-time job funded through the city's mentoring program slate. Their sources accused you of saying you were mentoring youth at times when you were actually at City Hall or in one case at a protest where you were arrested. Mm -hmm. You talked about that at great length with St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum earlier this year and called it a political hit piece. Let's listen to that clip here.
1: My job was a 24-hour mentor. You cannot mentor in the city of St. Louis disenfranchised youth between the hours of 8 and 5. Mm-hmm. Whatever program they're in, we got them in the program. They're going to they're going to strive in that program, they're going to do good, they're going to do what they got to do, but then after 5 they go back to those same communities that present all of those challenges and barriers. Mm-hmm. So somebody has to be there from five to the next morning to ensure that they get there so during this time at two o'clock in the morning I was stopping a young person from committing suicide at one o'clock in the morning I'm getting folks out of gunfights at 12 o'clock in the morning I'm at the justice center trying to get a youth out of jail for traffic tickets like this is what I'm doing at after five o'clock so excuse me if I when I go to fill out my time sheet Every two weeks, and I put okay, I worked eight hours. So yeah, I just worked nine to five. Mm-hmm. That's if you audited time sheets of places that filled them out the way that we filled them out, you would find a whole lot of discrepancies from lunch times to breaks to everything else. And most of the time, I worked more than eight hours. I just knew what my contract allowed. I was part time, so I couldn't work these hours. But that wasn't going to stop me from mentoring ten hours or eleven hours.
0: So when KMOV first contacted you, you gave them no comment. And it sounds like from when you talked to Jason, you had some explanations for some of this stuff. Do you regret not coming out in that initial piece and just pointing out all the, all your responses to these things?
1: No, I don't, because Lauren Traeger's horrible.
0: The, the reporter of the KMOV story? Yes, okay. No,
1: I don't regret it. Because you didn't trust her? As... No, I didn't. This was somebody who was my friend, who I thought was my friend. Like, when she worked for the circuit attorney's office, she did a video of me about the amazing, unconventional mentoring that I do.
0: And she, at the time, um, was working in public relations for circuit attorney Jennifer Jennifer Joyce. Joyce. And then she went back to journalism. Back
1: to journalism. Okay,
0: so you felt there was sort of a personal betrayal there.
1: Yeah, because you know what I do firsthand. You've been in these courtrooms. You've you've heard these stories of me showing up at 1 and 2 in the morning. You've heard the young people say it, right? You've heard Jennifer Joyce talk about it. And for you to come along with this piece in a program where you had an amazing director, right? We turned this program around. We had people coming through the doors. Programs were filled. We got, you know, measurable outcome, great metrics. And you do a piece about a part-time position that I had that only allowed me to work 34 hours per pay period at $15 an hour. Like, this was detrimental and then you come out and you say it's the taxpayer, taxpayer's money when it was a 501c3 and nobody, I didn't get paid by the city. I didn't, the city didn't oversee my supervision. It was, it was L-E-T-C. It was through UAW. Mm-hmm. You know, I sent her my offer letter. I sent her the timesheets that she posted, even on the program, said UAW, L-E-T-C. It didn't say the city. And then you check my Facebook to correlate times. Do you, you know how many times I've used, used Buffer and Hootsuite to, to tweet something and just schedule, schedule a tweet? Yeah. Because, yes, I'll schedule a tweet at 12 a.m. because I know I'm going to be asleep. But sometimes, you know, you want to give folks the illusion that you are. Period. <laughs> right. So you check in my Facebook. You say, oh, well, he was at City Hall. Well, I was at City Hall with 15 of our youth for three minutes and walk right back down the slate, which is only three blocks away. Oh he was in a mall protest and well what happened was when we came back we got this same youth out of jail who got locked up who was shopping Who's in our program? They thought he's part of the protest. So we spent another seven hours getting him out of jail. Next day, getting him a job because he had gotten into some trouble because he wasn't supposed to get locked up, but it wasn't his. I'm like, it, it goes, it's, it's, it was a rabbit hole that she went down. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I don't regret not talking to her. I'll never talk to her. Ever. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Your house colleagues, though, they used some questions about this piece basically to hold up some stuff that you were trying to do. Were you, I mean, you must have been angry at that point.
1: Angry is not the word. I was irate yeah I was irate because they used something that they knew nothing about um, to make a political point right to throw a political jab when the program that they were trying to hold up had nothing to even do with the story Mm -hmm. right Um, and they couldn't explain that and I got so mad at the speaker Because when it first happened, a speaker texts me and says, everything okay? I said, it's fine. He said, okay, good. We got your back. We got your back. All good. I got named to my committee as chair. Everything was cool. Mm -hmm. But when we did the voice vote, we won the voice vote, and they called it the other way.
0: Really? Yeah, like they played a a dirty trick with the vote there.
1: Look, um, some of your colleagues will tell you they do that all the time.
0: (laughs) Jefferson City is a a tough place. Oh, (laughs) no. Look,
1: I'm going to give it to you all. Real. Like, no, we've won a lot of times. (laughs) But because, you know, elections have consequences. So Mm -hmm. they're able to, okay, um, the no's have it. And we all look. And he looked at me and I'm like, all right, well, can we get a roll call? Right problem with the roll call is you get all these people that come from outside that weren't in the chambers and elsewhere. So they look at how other Republicans are voting and they see no's. I had about 15 Republicans that voted with me, right? The speaker, all he had to do was do the right thing and press the green button. Mm-hmm. He pressed the green button, it passes. No problem. Okay. But he played politics and pressed the red button after he had talked to me and knew that this was nothing, knew it wasn't an issue. And so, of course, I said something about it, you know, and I went directly at him. And he was he was a guy who um, I think till to this day, we have an okay relationship now. Um, I was really pissed off at him. But I mean, we had a good relationship before then. But no, I'm not going to hold my tongue, you know.
0: How much did your anger about that situation end up playing into your ultimate frustration and your decision to say, I'm out of here as far as the, the house goes?
1: I think it played, a, it played a little bit. It didn't play as much, but it played into um, my, my my mental health. It okay. played into my anxiety and my depression about being able to help my people right? Being able to help the community, being able to help poor people, because that's what I came here for. I didn't come here for anything else but to be able to take something tangible back to the community. So when I wasn't able to, it still passed, and we still got money into the budget, so on and so forth. Ultimately, they did fund that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But it it was a it was a blow to me because this is the this is what we've been fighting for, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and that didn't fuel you the way that in the past your anger had fueled you. That that ended up taking you to a darker place this time.
1: So it just helped take me to. I was already mm-hmm. in a dark place. I was you, in a dark it, place before session had even started.
0: I saw an interview where you said that you had hit rock bottom in December of 2018, and that is before KMOV's report. Tell me what had led to that? At um, so rock bottom state,
1: August 19th. Um, August nineteenth, uh, my loss. Um, my best friend, he's the best man of my wedding. He's my big brother. Um, lost him to gun violence, and um, we hadn't talked in a while, and you know that 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 hit me harder than a lot of things have hit me. And I've gone through a lot of deaths, especially with gun violence. And so um, the day after Black Friday, my nephew, um, Jerian um sixteen he was killed. And so that those two together were like, all right. Um, on top of that I was going through um, you know, just a lot of life changes, going through divorce, so on and so forth. Um, and I think it hit me that everything I came into the house with, um, I no longer had. Mm-hmm. Um, and shouts out to, you know, a special shout out to my ex wife Dana, who's one of my best friends, who kinda helped me, you know, a lot, you know, get through a lot of this as well. Um, but it it hit me that, you know what, you know, life is life is my life is a struggle. I spend so much time trying to help everybody else. And I think the biggest thing hit me is that I fight gun violence every day. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I saved so many lives, but I couldn't save those who were That's two you know, really important those two ones. Who I love, you know what I'm saying? The most, and so
0: I saw in an interview. You, the Post Dispatch reported that as of October twenty sixteen, you'd attended one hundred and sixty one funerals, and that's now almost uh, three years ago. I mean, have you, oh, have you over, continued uh, to keep track?
1: Oh, uh, I have no choice but to. I'm, I'm, How many I, are you at? I'm over two hundred now. Um, I, I have no choice but to keep track because. At the point where you start keeping track and it happens, I make Facebook posts. Or I, I would come on the house floor and say, "Look, I'm going uh, this weekend. I'll be going to my 181st funeral, and this is what happened, and this is what's going on in my community, right? Like this is why we need this, 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 or this." Um, and it it became kind of like it became robotic, right? Mm-hmm. It became I became a machine.
0: That's so many funerals. Yeah,
1: and and I think that's uh, what ultimately played into it is that. I became kind of like this everyday machine that wakes up oh something happens i feel sad for five seconds and then oh no it's time to get back to work i can't stay sad that long or i can't mourn or i can't cry i gotta be strong for everybody else So, or... and then it hit me you know um I, I had this you know this terrible nightmare and i woke up and i had kind of like replayed all these funerals that i had been to and it was like look this ain't normal mm-hmm. this ain't normal you need help you need to talk to somebody you need to do something um because if not it's going to drive you um, you know to your depth one way or the other you know
0: and were you able to find a, a mental health professional or somebody that you you I, didn't have to be strong in front of
1: yeah um not necessarily a professional but mm-hmm. um i found i found a couple of people to talk to um and that's one thing about mental health is um although those professionals they know what they're doing as they go to school for um, that might not always be the person that you you know, um, find solitude in. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, one of my closest friends um, has a son, um, Andrew, who's this amazing kid, right? And we kind of see a lot of things on the same level, and we're able to talk to each other. We're able to hit each other up, and um, being able to, you know, talk to him and help him, and him help me. And I mean, the kid's younger mm-hmm. than me, but he gets it. He's just like this, this, this beacon of light. That's great. And so he, you know, I really big shots out to my little bro. He uh, he definitely helped me out a lot. And then I have a lot of friends. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of friends, not to leave nobody out, but I have a lot of friends that hit me up, check on me, um, and, and make sure I'm okay.
0: Okay. So. Well, that's great. You were able to find that support, um, but you still did come to the conclusion you had to leave the state house and then also had to leave St. Louis. Tell me what the process was of, of you coming to that decision that i'm, I'm going to leave these two things
1: um so leaving the state house is something that put a lot of mental strain on me being up there um coming home and doing the work still mm-hmm. you know uh fighting through everything i was going through and putting you know a hundred hours a week in as a, for a
0: very part-time salary yeah,
1: for a and and i'll be all the way transparent right like I have child support. I pay uh, all these things for my kids as far as insurance and everything, right? So when I'm leaving, um, it's hard to raise five kids and yourself on $18,000 a year. Yeah, that, right? that
0: sounds near impossible. And
1: people are like, oh, well, why don't you just get another job? I was like, well, I don't re- necessarily represent that type of community where I can go get another job because they expect me to be there, right? They expect me to show up because, um, it, it, to me, their tears— And their cries are louder than mine, right? That's what matters to me. So um, I have to sacrifice this, and I have to make it happen, and I've always made it happen. Um, But it finally got to a point where, you know, I just didn't have that balance in life, and everything was hitting me from every which way. And it's, all right, I got people attacking me for having a part-time job, doing what I love to do, and actually saving lives because of politics, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it was like, no, I need to... I need to make a selfish decision, and I need to take care of me. Okay. Um, So
0: was the decision then to leave St. Louis, was that separate from the decision to leave St. Louis? So, yeah, actually it
1: was. Um, Decision uh, to leave St. Louis was separate because it wasn't initially, hey, I need to leave St. Louis. It did kind of trickle into that because it's like, I'm going to look for work here. I'm going to look for work there. I'm going to look for work here. I want to do this. I want to do that. And some of the jobs that I got, right, I got interviewed for, the first thing they asked me was, so we saw this story on KMOV. Oh, and so I'd explain, and then after a while, okay, well, you know, you're we'll call you back. You're amazing, blah blah blah. Then you get that email, like, oh, we chose we chose to go another route, okay. Right? So you felt like you were so,
0: almost being blackballed a little bit. Um,
1: almost, but I ain't too keen on. You know, I mm. I'm a fight for mine. So yeah. um, they couldn't blackball me in music, so they're damn sure I going <laughs> to do it in politics, but um that that helped drive it and I said you know what I can I could do this Mm -hmm. you know I need to but I need to heal and I need to heal not being in the epicenter of you know my trauma like where where my trauma comes from where my PTSD comes from where my anxiety and everything else like I need to be able to come in and you know, do what I need to do and leave and go back to the place where that brings me solitude and that brings me uh, mental healing. So
0: you wrote on Facebook, I love my city, but I can't heal from trauma and survive in the epicenter any longer. I'm making a selfish decision and it feels great. If I don't make this move, St. Louis is going to kill me. So may I ask where you're going? No. No. <laughs> you don't want Saint Louis to know where to find you.
1: No, I want I want everybody to I want everybody to respect my privacy. S- sure. Right. Have and, you
0: found a job in, in this place that you're moving to? No. Nope. Okay. So well, you're gonna uh, go and, and start over and yeah, make your way. Yeah,
1: I got some stuff that I'm doing. What I will say is I will be doing some public speaking, um, behind the documentary that they did about me, Saint Louis Superman. Um, that's, you know, winning some awards. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty cool to see. Um, hard to see because you watch like your story play out.
0: Yeah. Talk about PTSD, seeing that all on screen.
1: Yeah, every time. And um, and outside of that, I started a print company um, called Black Printing, Black Ink Printing, um, an online company that I'll be able to do from everywhere. So and oh, okay. that's been pretty good. That's been doing me a lot better than politics and I'm still battle rapping Like, and yeah. I've climbed up the ranks. So.
0: And you'll be doing that from elsewhere oh, too. Oh
1: man, absolutely.
0: So it sounds like we haven't heard the last of you. And, oh no. And you still have a very big family here. Absolutely. And are you going to be back secretly visiting us oh, or, yeah, I'm def- or not so secretly? <laughs>
1: um, For the most part secretly unless okay. unfortunately, knock on wood, um, unless something happens that mm-hmm. where I need to come shut down 40, 44, <laughs> 55, um, I'm okay with. But um, for the most part, it'll be secretly, you know, hitting up a few folks. Whether it's, you know, folks I respect in the media, and you know, some of my friends, and especially my kids. Like people know the greatest job I got is a father, mm-hmm. and so you know, can't nothing keep me from my kids. Yeah. You so know? You have to come back to yeah, St. Louis. Oh, I have to come yeah. back. You know, so um, yeah, I'll I'll be back, and you know, you just might see me walking down the street like, hey, <laughs> he's
0: back. I, yeah, I'll be
1: gone in 24 hours though.
0: <laughs> So I just want to end on sort of two sort of big picture questions for you then. Um, as we're looking at the, the last five years um, since Ferguson, I guess the question is, how has St. Louis changed in the five years since Ferguson? And what still needs to be done, in your opinion? Oh, man. Save the tough one for the end.
1: What's changed?
0: Have things changed?
1: So, so, so things have changed a little bit. Um, not nearly where they need to be. Um, we have Kim Gardner. We have... Our, our circuit attorney our circuit is, is now a black woman yeah, and making and, some big changes. And, and she's doing what she's supposed to do, period. Um, and we have Wesley Bell, right, mm-hmm. um, county. We have um, these young elected officials in the state house, um, especially in, you know, to be... To be real, I'm gonna talk about the black representation, right? Mm-hmm. We have a we have a some black representation that's changing, you know what that usual mold was. Not that usual. I'm gonna follow suit, or I'm just gonna do this. Like we have county folks like Rachel Proudie and like Kevin Wyndham, right? Who are gonna speak up, speak out, fight? We got St. Louis, you know. Um, we have. Um, You know, Keisha Bosley and we have um, Wiley Price and we have Rasheen Aldridge and Marty Murray and Jeff, you know, Jay Nelson. We got all these young folks. Right. Who who get it. Right. Who get it. Um, And that's what's big, because when we were five years ago, we didn't get it Mm -hmm. right. We didn't. We had a few young ones, but. Not like us, in my opinion.
0: There was a, um, an older generation. Yeah, there was an older generation, yeah,
1: and even the younger ones then kind of, you know, were, were willing to kiss the ring, right? Mm-hmm. And we're like, the hell with your ring, right? Like <laughs> you can you can take that elsewhere, and that's how it needs to be. Uh, when you won't pass the baton, we need to snatch it. Um, the
0: rebels have have taken some power, absolutely, in Louis. and
1: it, it's much needed. Um, and they do it respectfully for the most part. Um, but that's that's change as far as politics-wise. Um, we got more people willing to speak up a little bit, um, but we have so many different things to work on. Um, we still have to weed out, um, and I'm speaking about my community, we have to weed out those who look like us that ain't really for us, right? We gotta stop voting in people that got these same last names who have been doing the same thing for the last 30, 40 years, right? And And we keep wondering why change hasn't come. Um, because we're changing leadership, we're not changing leadership at the top, mm-hmm. right? We're not changing the leadership at the top of the city, at the top of the state, at the top of our our national politics, right? Um, the Democratic Party has to change. And although I've seen a lot of changes and shouts out to uh, Peter Meredith and HVC and, and uh, Representative Crystal Quay, um, who's our minority uh, floor leader. Um, no, you got to understand how important a black vote is. Right. You got to understand how important um, black folks are to the Democratic Party. You got to understand how important rural folks are to the Democratic Party. When you start alienating people, then we start being outnumbered in the House 117 to 46 and we'll continue to be there unless it changes. Um, So and, and, and my white progressives. Right. I love them to death, but. They got to get it together, too, right? It's all us. And we we need to point the finger at each other, but they need to understand how important black representation is, right? How important black spaces are and and the need for those things. And when we start to lose sight of that, I mean, we'll be stuck in the same position that we are.
0: Well, best of luck to you, Bruce. I want to thank you so much for joining me today. No problem. This was great. I want to wish you the best of luck in whatever city you're going to end up in.
1: Absolutely. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you.